Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome. Hi, hi. You'll notice I don't sound like I'm in a toilet or whispering awkwardly. What does that mean? I finished my clinical trial. Yay, congrats. Thank you. Um, how does it feel to be out? Um, I hate it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the real world. <laughs> I hate it. I have always believed on a deep, deep level that I'm somebody who would thrive in an environment where I have to kind of stay put. Not like prison, but I have also kind of thought I would be all right in prison. <laughs> like with a regular routine and stuff. Yeah, regular routine. I didn't have to go anywhere. In fact, I was prohibited from going anywhere. I had two to four meals a day brought to me, literally brought to me in bed. They did my laundry, just got to wear pajamas all day. And work. It's great. Sounds like the life of most humanitarian workers I know. Is it? (laughs) Joking, joking. Um, Sorry to all humanitarian workers out there. (laughs) It was just, it was like a, it was just really great. I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. I think I would thrive in a prison for white collar criminals. Like the ones where they let you get your GED and stuff. What's your GED? General education diploma. It's like if you if you don't uh, go to high school for some reason or you choose not to, you can get a GED, which is kind of you'll, you study by yourself. Right. And yeah. then you take a test and then they determine you have a whatever level of education, high school level education. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I just don't think I realized the cognitive burden deciding what I'm going to eat creates. Like think about how often I sit with you in the office and we're like, well, what are we going to have for lunch? <laughs> And actually, that takes a lot of thought, whereas I never had to do that. I knew for three weeks everything that I was going to eat for a full day. I never had to think about it. Yeah. And I do think that like people have a, have um, started to write more, at least in the social media channels I go to on like the cognitive burden of decision making. Sure. And how much that's increased because of the options available to us have increased in all aspects of our life. There is a woman who recently, have you seen, who came out of a cave, who'd been in a cave for like 18 months. Did you see this? No, sounds like heaven. Yeah, I thought of you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember where it is, but she, it was a research experiment and she spent 18 months in a cave. Um, she um was monitored but like they didn't the researchers didn't like interact with her but she was monitored to make sure that she was okay and so she went in in like november 2021 and came out like last week or a few weeks ago (laughs) and she said that like after the first couple of months she lost track of time you know the experiment was about how people track time Mm. And, and so, you know, she said that after about um, two months, she just sort of, you know, stopped tracking time. And she thought she'd been in there for like 100 days or something when actually it was like more like 400 days. days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she talked about how um, after a while, your brain starts to play tricks on you and you think you can hear voices and other things around you. And your brain starts to kind of make up the world or, or things that are there when they're not really. Was it dark? Yeah, yeah, just dark. I think she had, I don't know if this is because of the picture or it showed what it looked like and you saw her doing some exercises against a wall so there were some like lights i think she had okay. like you know led lights or something i okay. don't know she's doing like exercise and <laughs> some night vision stuff or whatever. <laughs> but yeah and then she came out and like oh she was very wobbly and like you know mm. she couldn't really stand up Her sensory and, experience yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, i mean i have to say that i did uh, become charismatic leader to the young people in my cohort 
because oh. they were all really struggling with being unable to move or leave or whatever. And I was like, you know, in my work, we do some training around getting kidnapped. They were <laughs> like, what do you do? And I was like, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, the first thing that they tell you is that in situations like that, you, you know, you need to establish a routine. So I get up at five and I do yoga for an hour and a half and I start my routine and I plan it out. I was like, you might find that beneficial. And then all of a sudden they were all doing yoga in the morning. Oh, I was going to ask, did you start, did you get a new yoga cohort yeah. because of it? That's so funny. Yep. Told you, charismatic leader. I've always thought <laughs> I'd make a good cult leader at one point because they're all Gen Z. So there was one point when they were all just asking me for like my life advice and was, it was just, it was very, it like played to my ego, but not to the part of me that doesn't want to interact with people. I was like, I'm here because I'm busy and I want to do work, not because I want to shepherd you into the next phase of your life. <laughs> that is so funny. This is like a fantastic ethnographic experiment. And I'm not talking about the clinical trial element, fuck that. I'm talking about like who comes forward as a leader. How do people respond? How do people gather around somebody? What motivations do they look for in other people? Like give them any wisdom on language. Are you trying to make a segue? Is yeah. That <laughs> any wisdom on the kinds of language that Gen Zers are using? Uh, no. So we are going to continue our conversation on language from last week. If you haven't yet listened, go back and listen to last week's episode where we talk about the Oxfam Inclusive Language Guide, which was released some weeks ago now. And we dived into a little bit the world reaction to it, some of the challenges with it, and really gave a, a little bit of a, an overview of what it's about. But we didn't really dive too much into the content. So this week, we're going to get into some of the words and some of the guidance and advice that they're putting out there and reflect a little bit on what that means for us and how we apply it or how we use those words. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Okay. The One of the ones I was surprised by is youth. Youth. So what's their advice on youth or guidance? Don't fucking say youth. Don't say youth. Don't say youth. Okay. People over or under X, so I'm assuming that's age, elderly people, older people, elders, young people. Wait, so you can say elderly people or their advice, sorry, not that you can or can't. I should try and stop using that because they're not dictating exactly. But their guidance is that, that sorry, elderly people is okay as well. Elderly people is okay, according to them. I don't really understand. I don't think elderly sounds particularly good. Yeah, I don't think I'd like to be identified as elderly. But weirdly, you can say you they want you to say elderly people, but not the elderly. So they're just trying to assign that it's people rather than the standard own like the elderly. But we infer from the elderly that we're talking about people, not carrots. And and, <laughs> oh, and I wonder if that's like partly some of the guidance in this when talking about young people or older people is that a lot of the language that we use has assumptions embedded in it, right? Sure. And so a lot of this language guide, as we mentioned last week, is around like people putting people within the way that you describe it. Maybe our language has just been afforded that that's an assumption, you know, and they're just explicitly trying to get us to say like because people, mm -hmm. you know, because you're saying like it's elderly. So people assume that that is a person. But you also they've also said it's OK to say elders. Oh, God, this feels like a very minute <laughs> difference. Yeah. I mean, what's the difference between elders and elderly? Okay. Oh, elderly is a description. 
Whereas, so okay. it's a adjective versus noun, I suppose. Okay, yes, I see. Um, so it says, write about older people in a way that affords respect and dignity and avoid phrases which are homogenizing or patronizing. But all of these are homogenizing because you're clustering people into a group, right? Yes, and also in any way that you cluster people into a group, you're also stereotyping, right? Yes. Um, so I'm curious. Like, like old people are boring, smell weird. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't say I couldn't say old people. They just said I can't say the elderly or seniors. Yeah, that's true. Okay. But yes, the, the youth thing, I, I would like a little more clarity on what youth comes with or, it, or why it's not dignified. But isn't youth a like designated category of age? Like, isn't it an actual category? I'm not sure. I mean, you could argue that everything is a category until we decide that it's actually really harmful and then we get rid of those categories. But yeah. Okay. I think also like there's a thing here around and, and, you know, this guy did say, you know, contextualize things as appropriate depending on where you are in the world. But youth is something that I think is often used in places I've traveled to as quite a common thing to describe people. So for in South Sudan, youth is up until the age of like 35 or 40, Yeah. you know, and, and that's classified and people are considered as youth until that point i don't know at what point i started saying young people but i do say young people but it, mm. for a while it was children and youth anyways okay, okay. interesting interesting yeah. the one that i like is people who have particular requirements people who require specific accommodations as opposed to people who have special needs people who have specific requirements people who have particular, particular. requirements or people who require specific accommodations. I like it. You like it? Yes. Yeah. I suppose, like, for me, people, I suppose, if someone said to me, I've got a person here with particular requirements, that can be quite broad, I suppose, can't it? Because it could be that somebody needs some childcare in order to be able to participate in something, right? Mm -hmm. Or somebody needs to um, use a particular kind of computer, because that accesses the internet and the other computers don't work. Like, like I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, that that for me feels really broad. Oh, like I have a flat tire and my particular need is one that is not flat. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, in a very, like, and I'm not saying we need to, like, hone in on, on you know, exactly a particular kind of group group of people in that but maybe this is the point that it's broad enough to make me go okay so what are those requirements yeah and it makes it much more specific and detailed enough for my response to be catered and tailored yes so i guess maybe that's a good piece i like it yeah that's a plus for me what you got mm. so let's talk about partner and spouse so their recommendation is that you say partner or spouse and husband and wife, if appropriate or culturally appropriate term with the same meaning. So unless it's necessary to specify a gendered term that implies marriage in a traditional sense, it may be more preferable to use a more neutral term such as partner, which is inclusive of all significant relationships. And I remember this one having a bit more of a wider reaction, I think, um, in terms of like a negative response people felt that it was sort of um, eroding a little bit how people are defined and as women and men in a more binary sense. I don't really have an issue with this. People are obsessed with like being more inclusive as eroding something. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just it really shocks me. Mm. Adopting more inclusive language isn't the deterioration of other things. This is like kind of like the all lives matter conversation of like, we're not talking about that these things don't matter or that these things are going away. We're talking about things that need 
to be better addressed in conversation. Like that's what is the thing here. Not like, because not every, you know, people often ask me if I've got a husband and I fucking don't, and I don't want one. (laughs) People with husbands seem fucking miserable to me. So (laughs) I'm in a hard pass on that. I mean, I'm totally agree with like the use of partner, because I also think that there is often a, a cultural expectation that you're married and that you know there's an expectation that you have a husband and wife or marriage is the center point sure and so i think that like husband and wife or or spouse even like can't continue to be the main kind of like centerpiece um and i know culturally that has often been the case in other places too like the first question i sometimes used to get was um are you married when i would do interviews around the world or wherever inquiring about my marital status was yeah often the first question This is also an assumption, like as you're saying, it's an assumption that everyone is married or that they're about to be married. Or it's their goal. And I and I don't think, you know, if we've learned anything from sex in the city. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know that show. Um <laughs> partner, spouse, you leave space for that person to be in a relationship, to define their own thing. That's the thing. Like this is just giving you space to define what you, who is significant to you. Yeah. Because I also know people who have husbands for whom they're not particularly significant to them. It could be somebody (laughs) else. Sorry, I don't mean to talk shit about husbands. It just sounds like most of you are gross. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just, you know, it gives people space to talk about who's important to them. Because, you know, if you're engaged with somebody what you want to know are like who are the important people in your life presumably you're talking about like different relationship dynamics that might influence you know how a person is accessing a service or accessing support in some way Yep. And we have learned also from Lana Wolf, who came on this show last year, that the humanitarian sector often excludes people who are single or have single and, you know, and and have families because they have this expectation that a family is a husband, a wife, two children and so on, and excludes people who don't kind of fit outside of that norm. Um, So another one I've got here is social norms, social beliefs and collective beliefs. Now, the reason I wanted to talk a little bit about this one is because this comes up a lot in our work in terms of understanding the dynamics that are happening in the communities that we work with or we're looking to understand how change happens in those spaces. And so it's how do you just describe people's beliefs and collective norms and so on that exist within a particular community? And Oxfam is suggesting that we say social norms social beliefs and collective beliefs. And it says social norms or collective beliefs about typical and appropriate behavior that are held by a group of people and often enforced by social sanctions rewards. An example is the belief that care work is women's work and that women have a duty to provide it. Now, what I found interesting about this is they say we avoid attitudes and behaviors. And I find that interesting because attitudes and behaviors come up a lot in how we measure and describe change in a particular community. So for example, you know, if you're training somebody on something like an awareness campaign about how to use condoms or how to use whatever, you're looking to see. Why did you start with condoms? I don't know. I just, it was like a health campaign that Mm -hmm. came in my head. Okay, you had out of the gutter. (laughs) I was trying to think of like a health campaign. Shut up. It's because I was talking about husbands earlier. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, there's probably some really weird association there. Yeah. Anyway, some any kind of health campaign, like washing your hands or whatever, you're looking to have people's attitudes change about how they wash hands, right? And then that they hopefully will use whatever it is you've said that they could use, which is a behavior change. Um, I used to work in the mine action sector and um, there used to be a lot of awareness on mines and the risks of, you know, not interacting with mines in an area. And then you'd want to hope that people would change their behavior and not go to that particular area or field or whatever. So I'm just really curious about, you know, avoiding attitudes and behaviors in this description. I think you just said it right, is that it's about this description. Okay. In the bottom, it says it is important that when we are referring to collective belief systems, we do not confuse them with personal attitudes or actual behaviors. If you are writing about attitudes or behaviors that are rooted in social norms, it's best to be clear about this and acknowledge the historical and cultural context. So it's distinct from a group of people versus an individual's hand-washing behaviors. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Okay. So there's not... So if I'm correct... Oh, sorry. Let me explain what I think is happening here. So it's like that there is... Um, there's no such thing as a collective attitude or a collective behaviors. These are individual actions. I think what it's saying is that instead of talking about attitudes and behaviors as a group of people, you would talk about them as social norms and social beliefs. But if you were talking about a behavior, so for example, I ran a wash program, we looked at individuals and their hand washing behavior. So now that's just one person and what they do. I see. Obviously, yes. that's situated within a context of like hand washing behaviors, gender norms that exist in the two different countries or whatever. But like, I think the point is about not confusing attitudes or behaviors with social norms and beliefs and like conflating them. Okay. Instead of saying like a behavior change program where you're talking about a massive group of people, you're probably talking more about social norms, social beliefs and collective beliefs, but you're talking about like one person attitude toward that or one that you're just looking at them attitudes and behaviors still exist but not when you're talking about the collective is how i is how i read this yes okay that's interesting i don't know at me oxfam if you disagree (laughs) but but you know maybe that is also something that people are less clear about generally and there needs to be more delineation between individual level and kind of community broader level sure Um, so i think that's really interesting did you want to talk about just speaking of condoms? Is there's one next to it which says uh, <laughs> "sex work"? Because I think okay, well, like you might have that. <laughs> what What are they saying about sex? In work? <laughs> I kind of thought we got rid of these words a thousand thousand years ago, but prostitute, prostitution, use of prostitute, and use of sex workers. We don't say that anymore. Okay. We yeah. say sex worker, sex work women or people who sell sex or sexual services or men or people who buy sex. Oh, wait. So it's, it's, so it's only men that buy sex. It is confusing that you wouldn't put men or women. Yeah. But also, why do you need to put gender there? Yeah. Why isn't it just people who buy sex? Right. Why is it women who sell sex? Yes. <laughs> men who buy sex? Right. Why isn't it just people, people who sell, people who buy? Yeah. Oof. Okay. Oxfam, you motherfuckers. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I'm ju- on Piers' side now. <laughs> <laughs> Just do one word. <laughs> Tip the balance. <laughs> See, and then they say a person who receives, a person who works in the sex industry for example, receives money or goods in exchange for sexual services. I mean, that's just dating, isn't it? <laughs> Stop it. See what the Gen Z is I've got to say about that. Come um, at me. I, I am your leader. <laughs> <laughs> 
What else you got? There's a couple of kind of complicated things in there around instrumentalism, which I was a bit like, well, what does this actually mean? So as an example, framing work towards women's economic justice through the lens that it will lead to wider economic growth is often presented by to the private sector as the business case for undertaking it. I'm not entirely sure I understand that, to be honest. However, this risk undermines women's agency. It is better to frame women's economic justice and sustainable business practices as mutually supportive rather than that they will definitively lead to business profitability, profitability, or this is the primary goal. So I guess it's that kind of like highlighting that we're going to promote women's economic justice and therefore it will lead to um, economic growth as a delineated piece. Do you know what instrumentalism means? No. Okay. That's why I'm asking. Right. So it's basically this idea that you do something because it's going to, because there's a practical reason for doing it as opposed to like, it's the right thing to do. So is it the case of like, you're doing it because you can make use of it as opposed to it's like. It's like greenwashing and pinkwashing. Like corporations taking something that they can use like that as opposed to doing it for the social good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any any other words that you want to highlight? Well, I think this is a I think this is a good one because we do this all the time is we feel like we're always having to make the case for something. Like we do this in our for us, right? Like we're like it, by taking a more inclusive participatory approach, you can get the following benefits <laughs> as opposed to like we don't want to be raging pieces of shit and this is why we do this. Do, yeah. do you see what I mean? Like Yeah, yeah. We're having to sell it. Yeah. Bit of a uh, tricky line. Being inclusive and participatory doesn't need to be a quid pro quo. It doesn't need to be like if you do this for me, yes. you're gonna get this for yes. me. Like, do you see what I mean? Like 100%. Uh, and yeah. I often think that this is like this is the cell we're always trying to make of yeah. why adopt a feminist approach. Okay. But, you see what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, is that something, I mean, maybe that's the goal for us is that when people aren't questioning why they need that approach, you know, like the, the point in which people are like, oh, okay, it's a given. I think if anybody asks us like, what's the benefit of a feminist approach, we're just going to say, well, we're not instrumentalists, so we're not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like it. Okay. A feminist approach has its own intrinsic value, so you don't need the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Very and if fair. you disagree, you're homophobic, you're a racist, and you're a misogynist. <laughs> okay. Yes. I like it. Cool. That seems like a good business plan. It does. Yeah. Um, so a couple, yeah, maybe just one or two more. Um, parent, parenthood. Um, this again had quite a big reaction from global audiences. I think because its guidance or advice says we avoid mother or father, avoid assuming the adoption of gendered roles by transgender parents. So yeah, those are real kind of, again, opening the, the words to be as inclusive as possible by saying parent or parenthood and not having assumptions embedded in there. And so people felt that Oxfam were getting rid of the word mother <laughs> through this advice. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from my transgender siblings, but I think that because th- this point is avoid assuming the adoption of gendered roles by transgender parents. The same could also be said for same sex parents yeah. who don't necessarily adopt adopt gendered roles like or, or anyone no like if you know anyone might not want to yeah i mean it's more common in straight relationships though <laughs> no, lame <laughs> so think about i've been watching a lot of come dine with me that's what i was watching when i was in my clinical trial and there was always this question of like 
in the couple's version of come dine with me, there was always like, so who wears the pants in this relationship? I think this is what this is talking about. Like, who's the father of you two? I would say here that it's not just not necessarily transgender parents who have that kind of experience because I've been in relationships where somebody was like, oh, so you're the you're the man or you're the woman. Like, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like assigning these roles when, yeah. you know, you could have two femme women. Yeah. whatever. As I said, I don't want to take anything away from the trans community. Don't come at me. Love you all. I would just say that this doesn't go far enough. But also not everyone's a parent. Some people are carers. You know, what about grandparents? Yeah. Although that has the word parent in it. So arguably that's somebody's parent, but it could be a carer. Um, Yeah, true. Very true. An aunt or an uncle or a gunkle or a funkle. Yeah. Or a fant, a funky ant. <laughs> okay. Um, Tia's already creating Language Guide 2.0. Funkle is not mine. I didn't create that. Okay. That's a thing. Shout out to, uh, and that's why we drink M. Schulz. I have no idea what you're talking about now. It's a podcast I listen to, okay. and that's why we drink. <laughs> okay, okay. It's the one where they do the spooky yuki one and then yes. a, uh, a true crimey one. Okay. What I'm happy to see is that queer is on here. Yes. <laughs> I was having a conversation with somebody and I was like, yeah, like I'm queer. And this was a group of older lesbians and they were like queer. They were like laughing really hard because that's not the like generational vernacular. Like that's not a colloquialism that they were familiar with. Like they always thought that that was a pejorative before. Whereas queer is in my generation, an umbrella term for what we now say is LGBTQIA+. Plus, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> in my day, we just said queer. Yeah, the evolution of the language for sure. So it's back. It's been codified by Oxfam. So back. thank you. Oh. <laughs> okay, when it's in the Oxfam's language guides, it's official. Okay, well that's good to hear. I think one other one that I wanted to bring up was around migration. So there is a section on like refugee crisis migration, what you should say, not say. And it says that migration is a complex phenomenon. Migration is a natural and complex phenomenon to be managed for the good of all. Why migration is not a challenge, crisis or problem. It is not a threat that needs to be stopped. There are many reasons why people flee their homes, conflict, persecution, climate change, scarce resources, extreme poverty, and often a mix of circumstances. But Oxfam's guidance says we avoid migration crisis, refugee crisis, migration challenge, and migration problem. So I guess looking at through the lens of it being a complex phenomenon rather than something we should all be majorly worried about, a crisis and problem, is their angle. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that one. What's, what's your initial thought i understand the problem with putting migration and crisis or refugee and crisis together because like in the same way like we you wouldn't say you don't, we want to avoid saying a like gender issue right right like i i understand why they don't want to put them together but there is a crisis that but maybe this is what they mean by like using force displacement instead because there are real social political economic climatological yeah. <laughs> problems that yeah. are causing people to move and in that movement a lot of shitty horrible things are happening to them yeah that feels like a crisis calling it a crisis makes me want to pay attention to it more not less yeah Like if you called it like a refugee jamboree, it sounds more joyful, but it doesn't really call me to do anything significant. It doesn't it doesn't communicate the scale of the 
problem. Yeah. And, and I think there's the same conversations that happened with climate change. Like how do people respond? Do people respond if it's called a climate crisis? Or do people respond if you just say oh, it's climate change? Like there, there's something there in, in people's response. We've also had conversations with Serena Joy Stevens around um, scarcity um, and maybe climate crisis or naming something as a crisis or problem could reinforce that kind of like scarcity mindset. Um, versus flipping it to a more positive like oh I can actually make a difference and a change in climate change or if we address climate change that means that we will have more versus if you see it as a crisis does that feed into the scarcity mindset because these words have more negative connotations I suppose it kind of depends on the individual person right because do you respond to a crisis or do you not respond to a crisis because it feels too massive like that feels like an individual thing yeah good point so kind of regardless of what you call it in some ways it sort of is up to the person and how they feel whether or not you know like refugee jamboree but then, for me that's not motivating refugee crisis is fucking motivating a shit because it makes me feel scared so i want to like act but in the negative connotation as well like if someone you know the daily mail says we've got a migration crisis therefore you know we need to stop people crossing the sea like that feeds that too you know that's your perspective coming into play regardless of what they called it in the daily mail if you're reading that trash you already think it's a problem <laughs> even if they called it a refugee jamboree in the daily mail you're already like yes. that's you it doesn't matter that that's your dog whistle it doesn't matter <laughs> so like for me when i see the word crisis i think there's something really wrong that we need to address yeah. whereas on the other side of that people who read the daily mail i like there's something really wrong we need to address and it's bad and it's terrible because like they shouldn't be here whereas i might go yeah more people yeah. need to come because they're not safe yeah yeah i mean gosh this is the power of language hmm. <laughs> and the individual lens you that you place on it yeah. yes 100 percent. and i think this is kind of what it comes down to is that i understand why people are taking a negative interpretation of an inclusive language guide is because like these things matter and these words matter. They matter to everyone, which is why everyone is like, oh, this is fucking terrible. And why some people are like, oh, this is really good. Like, because we all recognize that words matter. Yes. I don't know. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're not probably not a daily mail person anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are. This is not the podcast. Is- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say some shit, but that's fine. <laughs> Jumped in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. just, uh, it, it matters. And because it matters, that's why we should be more inclusive. And this is how we translate our values into action. Thinking about the language that I'm using is important. There are certain things that I've stopped saying because I realized that they are ableist and they're offensive to people who are living with mental health issues, for example. Like I used to say crazy all the time or insane. And it was uh, Eddie Bailey King who drew attention to that and said, actually, cut that shit out. She didn't say that, but that's what she meant. That's what she meant. That's how I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I totally agree. Like I think this guide in itself and this kind of realization of how we can all be more inclusive really like has come into, is becoming much a bigger place in my mind. And when I see other people using words or talking about things, you know, it's like, okay, I see it. Did you say when you see people using words? Yeah. I guess I I, I was thinking about some people, like when people like type on WhatsApp. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, I see. Yeah. So when I hear see people using these kinds of words, it becomes much more obvious. And maybe something in this this guide doesn't have, it might do. So correct me if I'm wrong. Is a space for you to be able to guide other people if they're not? Like, how do you, if you hear somebody using words that could be offensive to people, how do you call that out? Or how do you say, oh, maybe you ought to, you know, use this word instead? Or, you know, I advise maybe that word could be a bit offensive. I think probably in order to action a lot of this and if people are more interested, it's now like finding how to call it out with other people as well. There's a good book called The Clapback, which I highly recommend. We'll put that in there. I think I've maybe even talked about it before. Yeah. But that's more like how you clap back, how you respond when people are using, it's primarily racist language. But yeah, there is a section in the back of this that actually just describes how you handle people using offensive language. Oh, there is. Great. Yeah. A couple of things that they recommend here are to slap them in the mouth. Come in a teeth. Okay. Or maybe that was the um, the draft annex that that I received or wrote. I don't know. <laughs> well, there we go. We all know how T is going to be responding to this. Journey to transformation does not condone violence of any kind, unless it's warranted. <laughs> Unless someone's being offensive and rude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yes, I think um, we're both taking away a lot from um, this guide in terms of continuing the conversation as well. And I think that's a lot of the point of this guide is to start having those conversations. There's a flexibility and evolution in how these words will be used or received and the adaptation that needs to come because we work in lots of different places around the world. So I think, you know, one thing you can't really do is take this guide and then start using it everywhere. I'd be interested to see what kind of responses people get. It's like when you and I, when we're doing focus group discussions or key informant interviews and we ask people's pronouns <laughs> and yes. they're like, I remember one, uh, one organization who laughed in your face when you asked. Yeah. Pronouns. Yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. I think that there, there are going to be certain limitations and reactions. I don't want to call anyone out, but <laughs> they were also responsible for the publication of this inclusive language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just one individual. Obviously, we didn't interview them as a whole, but then it's a very interesting thing to note. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the application of this is going to be very... <laughs> I'm leaving that in, by the way. No. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this language journey that we're going on. And feel free to call us out on any language we're using in the next couple of episodes and beyond. <laughs> Just uh, in the next two episodes, that's it, that's what you get. <laughs> no, all of them, beyond. Yeah, I mean, if you hear us using words that, you know, don't resonate with you, we want to know either because we want to fix it or we want to make fun of you some more. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.